We all love THC. It consoles us when we are hurt. It soothes our pain when we are injured. It opens our mind and gives us big thoughts, and it makes us better humans. When CBD, cannabidiol, entered our awareness in the early 2000s, cannabis caregivers and patients quickly learned of the incredible benefits that CBD had on an array of ailments because it interacted so effectively with the endocannabinoid system. When I speak to patient groups around the country, there is usually someone in the group who has some version of, how can CBD help so many medical problems? You talk about it like it's a magical potion. And it's true that the list of physical problems that CBD helps with seems unrealistic, but I tell folks that CBD really only helps one thing. It supports and strengthens the endocannabinoid system. The healing gained is because the endocannabinoid system is the body's master regulator for all the major systems. So, if you help the master regulator, you keep your body more in balance and lessen the impact of a wide range of ailments simply because you have gassed up the regulating mechanism and it can now do its job more effectively. With the popularity of CBD, new research is now just beginning into several other novel cannabinoids, including CBG, cannabigerol. And CBG2 acts system-wide through the endocannabinoid system in similar ways as CBD. CBG has many benefits for folks looking to get relief. And today we're going to dig into the first scientific survey of what ailments patients are using CBG to relieve. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we are giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. This month, we are giving away the entire Vashon Kush series from Farmer Fly Selections. Ten lucky winners will receive one randomized pack of these ten new Vashon Kush crosses. To learn more about what the crosses are in the drop, check out at Farmer underscore Fly on Instagram. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive the newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Dr. Ethan Russo. Dr. Ethan Russo is a board-certified neurologist and former senior medical advisor to GW Pharmaceuticals. He served as study physician to GW Pharmaceuticals for three phase three clinical trials of Sativex. He has held faculty appointments in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Montana, in medicine at the University of Washington, and as visiting professor at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He has been president of the International Cannabinoid Research Society and is former chairman of the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicine. In 1995, he pursued a three-month sabbatical doing ethnobotanical research with indigenous people in Peru. He is author of several books of cannabis medicine and has published over 30 articles in neurology, pain management, cannabis, and ethnobotany. Dr. Russo has joined us before on Shaping Fire, episode 22 on treating traumatic brain injury with cannabis and mushrooms, and episodes 11 and 27 about his famous research papers on cannabinoids and terpenoids, episode number 67 about treating migraines with mushrooms and cannabis, 
recently on episode 80 to talk about his new paper on cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, and of course, the 10-part video series, Shaping Fire Sessions, on the Shaping Fire YouTube channel. Today, we offer Dr. Russo's very first public interview on the results of his groundbreaking paper out this week titled, Survey of Patients Employing Cannabigerol Predominant Cannabis Preparations, Perceived Medical Effects, Adverse Events, and Withdrawal Symptoms. Welcome to the show, Ethan. Good to be back. Right on. So we're going to talk mostly about this uh, new comprehensive survey that you and your co-authors have published. Um, but before we do that, um, let's spend the first set in talking specifically about CBG so that everybody understands a little more significantly the impact of the survey when we get to it. So, you know, while CBG is only really getting popular now, when did we first discover and isolate cannabigerol and knew that it existed. Well, that goes clear back to 1964. Uh, as with many other items pertinent to cannabis and uh, cannabinoid science, Professor Mishulam was there uh, with his uh, partner, uh, Yekhil Gaoni, who uh, died, I think, three years ago at about age 90. Um, but they isolated cannabigerol in 1964 from uh, hashish that uh, was seized uh, by the government, and it was of Lebanese origin. Uh, but even then, uh, as is so often the case, Professor Mishulam was very prescient about what might happen, and he called cannabigerol the missing link in the plant synthesis of cannabinoid constituents. So he knew right away that this was sort of the mother of, of all cannabinoids, um, was the precursor to the, the rest, uh, and that turned out to be absolutely correct. So, so what is the reason that he determined it was the mother of cannabinoids? Well, uh, in looking at the chemistry, it seemed that other things would be derived from it. Um, and I imagine that this was based on the structure. Um, uh, but uh, certainly, uh, I don't know how he did it, but he turned out to be right, as in so many things. So, it was discovered... Um, uh, Dr. Mushulam realizes that this is a significant discovery, and then all of a sudden, they're like, "There's this big period where there's not a lot of research." What do we attribute that that to? Is that is that directly related to prohibition, or was like nobody really interested? Well, combination of a couple of things. First was prohibition. Uh, by this time, uh, cannabis was already illegal most places, and then more formally so uh, with a single convention treaty, which followed a few years later. But the main reason was all the bandwidth was taken up by THC. Uh, and because in initial studies, which took place in 1969, uh, they started giving cannabigerol uh, to dogs, monkeys, r mice, and rats, and didn't see any really uh, overt behavioral changes, and so uh, it just didn't get any attention until much later. So back in the days like that, they would have been giving them um, CBG isolate, correct, and, and not in the company of other cannabinoids? Yeah, very likely. Uh, of course, there'd be small amounts that might be present if someone were using hashish or other forms of cannabis, but one of the quirks, um, and th this could be another reason that it wasn't studied so much, normally, 
CBG doesn't accumulate much uh, in uh, cannabis plants. It sort of is a high thro- throughput stop on the way to the other cannabinoids. Uh, in other words, as soon as it's made, most frequently the plant goes on to THC or CBD. Um, but uh, now with selective breeding, that situation is changing, and we'll get to that more later, I'm sure. For sure, we are. And <clears throat> when you, so what do you mean, um, high throughput stoppage? I think is how you put it. Well, uh, again, uh, so. There are enzymes that uh, result in the production of cannabigerol, or actually cannabigerolic acid, uh, which is what the plant makes before decarboxylation, the loss of CO2 molecule. Uh, But again, normally it doesn't stop there. Uh, There are more enzymes that will lead to production of THC and CBD. Uh, And so in most cannabis samples, when they're analyzed, uh, you see either no CBG or very small amounts, well, well under 1%. So one of the things that we know about, um, you know, the, the variety of cannabinoids that have been researched is that they they work on different receptors in different ways, which um, kind of suggests what they might be used for. Um, what are the different actions and receptors that CBG acts on? And, and it, is it similar to any of the other cannabinoids? No, it's it's really distinct. I mean, there are some... Uh, some overlaps in terms of the things that it seems to be good for, which we'll talk about later. Um, But straight out of the chute, it's important to mention that CBG does not seem to work directly on the cannabinoid receptors, at least Hmm. not CB1 and CB2, which are normally associated uh, with THC. So it's true to say that it is not intoxicating or doesn't produce a high the way that THC does. And again, early on that led to less interest. Now I think it leads to more interest because of all the benefits it can have therapeutically without the possible downside of intoxication because uh, being high, as you know, is considered a side effect according to the FDA. Uh, But to answer your question, it does work on uh, adrenoreceptors, um, alpha-2 adrenoreceptors, and this may have something to do with its effects on pain. Um, Additionally, it's an antagonist at what's called the TRIP-M8 receptor, uh, which uh, makes it a good candidate for a number of things, um, particularly uh, treatment of prostate cancer, uh, but also overactive bladder um, and a variety of other things. Um, And then there are lots of other activities where all of the um, uh, all of it hasn't been worked out. Uh, You know, again, um, its activity at CB1 and CB2 is much, much less uh, than THC. 
But uh, beyond that, um, and all these mechanisms aren't uh, clear yet, but um, back in 2008, uh, Giovanni Appendino and his colleagues discovered that CBG is very powerful as an antibiotic against gram-positive bacteria, and that includes MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, uh, which is associated with hospital-acquired infections, and um, some years ago was responsible for a lot of deaths. So, <clears throat> so as far as the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, as far as the fact that we haven't really had consistent access to CBG until we've developed these more um, CBG dominant plants, most folks that I talk to kind of generally have the belief that land races had wide ranging varieties of cannabinoids until they became heavily bred for the THC market. And it is that breeding for THC that you mentioned that bred the CBG out because it was taking up space in the resin gland that could be holding THC instead. Um, have you seen much evidence either through your research or through your work with Breeders Best that there were CBG dominant land races prior to um, us starting to breed it for THC heavily? Uh, great question. I, I don't know that we know that. Um, uh, what I can say um, is that where people have been uh, growing with regenerative agriculture, real soil, uh, active mycorrhizae, uh, natural bacteria in the soil, they're seeing a great greater diversity of cannabinoid production, including CBG. So in other words, uh, chemovars, chemical varieties that previously were primarily THC or CBD seem to be expressing more different cannabinoids, including CBG, when they're grown in this fashion. So um, the premise of your question is a real possibility. Part of the problem is we don't know, uh, didn't have great analytical capabilities going back uh, to the early 70s when there were more land races available. And as I'm sure you're aware, uh, a lot of those have been supplanted by seeds from California and the Netherlands. And so it's getting harder to find uh, some of the old land races. Um, but that's a great topic for future research. Uh, something I'd like to be able to answer better in the future. Yeah, it is disappointing that so many of those original land race populations have, um, um, I don't know, been, been infected by worked over lines from uh, from the West. Um, uh, I, I do I do hope that people put more effort into um, saving those land races. And as a side note, I find that very interesting too that that you're finding the expression of CBG and the other uh, various cannabinoids uh, is more prevalent in living soil. And you know, from the other episodes we've done, it, that would make sense too, right? If if the if the 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 plant has got a wider relationship with the soil, and the plant is sharing exudates with the microbe life in the rhizosphere, allowing a wider variety of life, thus feeding the plant from below all, all those you know, delightful excretions in the living soil, it would make sense that, that the plant has got more raw material to express itself more, more wildly, which is, you know, why, why plants that are grown in soil have got a wider 
terpene profile than 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 otherwise. That's that's really interesting. Uh, so that it would make sense that if folks who are growing intentionally for CBG would want to strongly consider soil. All right, that's interesting. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so. Um, CBG is often called a novel or minor cannabinoid, and, and in most cases that seems to be synonymous with not studied much, right? Do those, do those words novel or minor cannabinoid have any relevance in science? Well, novel is a misnomer. Uh, minor really refers to the fact that we usually don't see a lot of it. And again, that's a situation we'd like to change. I really think that CBG is the next big thing. On uh, Maybe in the future, we're not referring to it as a minor cannabinoid. Um, right. So, so, so there's a case to be made that really the words novel and minor are, are more of a layman's terms and, and, and not actually all that legit. All right. Novel to me just means, uh, you know, I hadn't heard of that one so much yet. But again, a situation that we need to change. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I was surprised to read in your paper that CBG actually often occurs, or, or maybe not often, but occurs elsewhere in nature other than in cannabis. Would you please teach us a bit about that? Yeah, not widely. Um, clear back in 1979, uh, there was an article that was published in German um, from a German group, and they were looking at uh, so-called South African daisy, Helichrysum umbraculigerum, and they found small amounts of both cannabigerolic acid and cannabigerol in the plant. And it was mainly an analytical article. Um, but when you really dig, it gets interesting because uh, this plant and uh, related uh, species in the genus are were uh, sometimes smoked uh, by indigenous people in South Africa. Um, uh, there's not a lot, lot of detail about the effects, but presumably there was some psychoactive effect. And, you know, uh, Europeans would often look at this and, and claim that these things were smoked uh, as a tobacco substitute. In other words, when people didn't have tobacco to smoke, they'd smoke these other things. But I, I think that that's uh, culturally myopic, let's say. Um, I think that. My, my suspicion is that it had an anti-anxiety effect, uh, and that's why it was being smoked, and uh, we've got some evidence for that now. Um, but the amounts were small. Um, this was an article that I, I knew of and uh, actually paid to have it translated into English because I'm not a German reader. Um, but again, it uh, didn't provide a lot of detail about the uses. Um, subsequently, my colleague Mark Lewis um, looked at some plants that we germinated. It was very hard to get seeds. Um, but he really found only tiny amounts, and it's unlikely without a tremendous amount of selective breeding that you could get significant concentrations um, of these molecules from that species. It makes a lot more sense to selectively breed cannabis where uh, we can do a lot better these days in uh, cannabigerol production. So in the second set, we're going to talk more about um, you know what people are reporting in the modern day 
um, as human users of cannabis. But before your survey, the largest survey of, of users that has occurred, looking backwards, we were looking at animal studies primarily, and there were some suspicions of what we were going to find uh, the positive uses of it are. So would you would you do a review of uh, of what we what I guess what we were suspecting when we headed towards um, studying human use because of what we've learned from the animal studies? Yeah, again, uh, so the early studies, um, they just didn't see a lot of overt behavioral changes. Um, but then uh, there was some work showing uh, benefit on pain reduction. Uh, there were studies that showed decreasing of the intraocular pressure, much as, as THC can do. Um, there were effects to reduce reddening uh, that were associated with inflammation. Um, uh, more interesting uh, were some cytotoxic effects, in other words, uh, effects against cancer. Um, and uh, that was true in what's called epithelioid carcinoma, and then again in uh, prostate cancer um, and breast cancer, uh, there was also a prominent response. Um, there was some rodent work done showing an antidepressant effect. Uh, there was a reduction of cells called keratinocytes um, that are uh, present excessively in psoriasis, so that indicated uh, possible use there. Um, and let's see, what else? Um, uh, oh, an interesting one is um, CBG also works on another receptor, a nuclear receptor that affects gene transcription called PPAR gamma. And uh, in experiments that were done a couple of years ago, they were sh shown to be a neuroprotective effect in inflammation. Um, and also uh, effects on another um, agent uh, called tumor necrosis factor alpha that's involved in autoimmune disorders. So it opens up a lot of possibilities. Uh, finally, there was a recent study just this year in glioblastoma multiforme um, showing uh, that basically cannabigerol could kill that kind of cell. Um, so uh, again, very promising, particularly since without giving anything away, I can say that cannabigerol is a very non-toxic substance. Likely we could give large amounts of it and to be able to treat cancer successfully without introducing a lot of other toxicities, in other words, side effects, uh, is going to be a real boon in the future because currently available chemotherapy agents are generally toxic. In other words, you hope that you kill the cancer before you kill too many of the patient's normal cells. And this is why uh, standard chemotherapy is associated with loss of hair follicles and sloughing the gut and um, cannabigerol and other cannabinoids pretend to be uh, much safer as chemotherapeutic agents. Uh, so that part's very exciting. I'm I'm curious what you mean using the 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 term that's relative. Uh, you can give much more CBG, right? Um, for for many folks, a a you know a a regular dose is going to be 
you know, somewhere between probably 10 and 20 milligrams, maybe down to five, but probably 10 to 20. Um, so when you say much more, what are you actually saying milligrams wise? Well, uh, you know, with some of the cannabinoids, it may be necessary to have hundreds of milligrams a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, at least, and I don't want anyone pressing their luck, but we've got so little indication of toxicity from the information we have, it's very likely uh, that those kind of high doses could be given without um, the kinds of drawbacks that we find with huge doses of THC, uh, where certainly people can attain them, but often they have to do it by titrating upwards uh, over a period of time, as much as two weeks. Um, so that that remains to be seen, but from what we know so far, uh, my strong suspicion is that high doses of CBG will be tolerable to people um, that might need uh, higher doses to treat uh, cancer primarily. Yeah, I've worked with patients that are taking as much as 250 a day, and um, they, they certainly don't seem to have any uh, negative side effects uh, un- unless uh, not having any anxiety is a side effect. <laughs> but um, So this last question before we go to the break, um, it's, a, it's a little personal, but I, I think that it's called for um, regarding what you've just said about the history of this. As, as a research scientist who also has worked in um, you know a general practice so that you are used to um, interacting with real humans who are really suffering and you're not just um, only in the lab where people are sometimes less connected to the patient um, how do you, how do you feel about the the frustration of having um, your hands tied for so long and being able to research something that you just stated we've had really good ideas that is going to help people for so long but no one's really had the opportunity to touch it and now having that opportunity increasing I mean I as someone who's a lifelong researcher for you it must be somehow like a frustrating opportunity. <laughs> Well, I think frustration is my middle name where cannabis comes uh, <laughs> comes in because, uh, you know, this has been my life for 25 years. Um, but, frankly, uh, the situation with prohibition on cannabigerol uh, is outrageous. It's scandalous and scientifically untenable. Um, this is not a drug of abuse. Uh, I'm certain that when drug abuse liability studies are done, they're just not going to find a signal here. Uh, It could be that it's one of the solutions to addiction, but it won't be a cause of addiction. Um, So it's guilt by association. It happens to come from a plant that also happens to make THC, uh, which similarly shouldn't be prohibited. Um, So... It is an outrageous situation, and the longer it goes on, uh, the greater the tragedy will be compounded. Are you seeing that the ability to do this kind of research has been eased? I mean, you've told me just in passing, <laughs> you've told me in passing that even doing this survey is hard, and you're just asking questions. What What is the state of play as far as doing CBG studies? Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, technically... It is CBG is a Schedule One forbidden substance, and people could be arrested for it under federal law. That has not changed, um, irrespective of the fact that it's legal in many states. Um, 
it would be possible for people to be prosecuted just for having this stuff. Um, so that hasn't changed. And the roadblocks to research remain essentially no no difference substantially from what I experienced back in the 90s. Jeez. So, well, thus, yeah, thus, I mean, the, this, thus the frustrating opportunity, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Well, another reason I've worked for foreign companies for most of the past 25 years. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I'm excited to hear what the what the survey uh, shows us, but let's go ahead and get the first commercial break out of the way. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabis researcher and neurologist, Dr. Ethan Russo. Cannabis folks are innovators and problem solvers, and we like to make money. Have you developed a tool, technique, or plant that you want to protect and monetize? You'll likely want legal representation that is experienced, accessible, and shares your values. Plant and Planet Law represents a wide variety of clients who choose to respect the environment while pursuing their business goals. Have you invented a machine or gizmo that you're bringing to market? Did you discover a breakthrough environmentally friendly pesticide or fertilizer formulation that you're about to start selling? Have you bred a cannabis plant with attributes not found anywhere else? Attorney Dale Hunt and his plant and planet team have established genetic patents in over 30 countries. Working to help entrepreneur scientists throughout the life sciences, Plant and Planet represents environmentally positive clients in cannabis and other botanicals, fungi, water purification, clean energy, emulsions, and medical applications. Plant and Planet helps people protect what they've created. If you are an early stage company with an established idea and are in the process of fundraising, often the investors require intellectual property protections happen at the same time. Plant and Planet can be your sole representation, or they can integrate with your existing legal team and plug in their specialties. Plant and Planet is made of scientists, lawyers with a real passion for cannabis, inventions, and the environment. They have the scientific and legal depth to help you establish patent protections for your great idea. You don't have to go it alone. Friendly, qualified, and honorable legal representation is available to you. Contact Plant and Planet Law today to start the conversation. Email info at plantandplanet.com. That's Plant and Planet Law. Our clients make the planet better. For years, organic cultivators have been looking for a replacement for using peat moss. Peat moss has long been the go-to soil amendment for water retention and container growing, but organic growers know that peat moss is an unsustainable resource, and the mining of peat bogs destroys habitat and releases sequestered carbon. But peat moss works so well that many have continued to use it. But now there's finally a revolutionary replacement for peat moss that shares the same benefits while also being sustainable. Pit moss sounds and acts like peat moss, but instead of being mined from fragile ecosystems, it actually is made from upcycled organic paper and tree bark. Pit moss is excellent at retaining water in your substrate and creating air pockets and tiny living environments for microbes. Pit moss instantly increases aeration, nutrient absorption, and water conservation too. Carefully and locally sourced, pit moss is the result of decades-long research into the use of recycled paper fibers. Pit moss has the fluffy nature of peat moss and handles exactly the same. And like peat moss, pit moss is inert, so it won't change your pH. Available in a range of preparations, including a nutrient-enhanced blend, a cocoa-coir blend, and also as an organic soil conditioner with no added nutrients. 
Pit Moss is also available as an animal bedding. So go to pitmoss.com now to learn more. That's P-I-T-T-M-O-S-S dot com. Growing healthier, more sustainable plants. Pit Moss. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O dot com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynamico on Amazon or Dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis researcher and neurologist, Dr. Ethan Russo. So during this set, we're going to focus specifically on this survey with a title that is um, a mouthful. So here it is. The title of the, of the paper is Survey of Patients Employing Cannabigerol, Predominant Cannabis Preparations, Perceived Medical Effects, Adverse Effects, and Withdrawal Symptoms. So uh, you pretty much know what the agenda is here in the second set so um so ethan uh i, I you've got um a handful of co-authors on this study and you know they everyone put in hard work so i'd like us to take the opportunity to to give them a nod if you would Sure. Well, this was a real uh, labor of love uh, involved three universities uh, as well as Credo Science. Um, it was my idea to do this, uh, but I immediately wanted to enlist the, the help of Carrie Cutler on uh, the Department of Psychology at Washington State University, uh, who was uh, fantastic in putting this together um, and really implementing uh, the survey, uh, which we decided what to ask uh, jointly. But a lot of that work was also informed uh, by Michelle Sexton at the University of California, San Francisco. Um, we also enlisted uh, the aid of another great researcher, Ziva Cooper at uh, UCLA, um, and uh, grad student Amanda Stoiber, uh, who works with uh, Carrie 
was involved, as well as uh, my business partner, Nisha Whiteley at Credo Science. Um, so I had the uh, great fortune to be involved uh, with five uh, wonderful women in doing this study, and it all went very smoothly uh, from our standpoint. Um, who funded this study? Uh, well, basically, uh, essentially, Carrie and uh, the rest volunteered their time. Um, you know, uh, same with us at Credo Science. Uh, we offered two gift cards as an incentive to participation. That cost me personally a hundred bucks. But, you, wait, um, you, the the the, <laughs> the people who were recruited, you paid for the for the raffle. Everybody was in. Ah, uh, yes. That's sure. funny. I assumed that since this was being done in cooperation with universities, that, that the way it always happens is that the, the university foots the bill for everything. But I guess that's an incorrect understanding on my part. Well, it generally would be. Um, you know, clearly, uh, Carrie and other people work through grants, but sometimes the grants offer latitude in, in how you spend your time. Um, but... Uh, you know, this was not uh, funded by the National Institutes of Health uh, directly or anything like that. All right. Well, then uh, let's move right into the survey. Um, um, I'm just going to kind of like hand you the mic because um, so that you can go, go through your notes. Would you explain for us how the survey was set up and operated? Sure. Well, first, um, the study was exempted uh, from what's called the Institutional Review Board. They looked at it and decided that we weren't going to do anything that would uh, uh, interfere with the anonymity of participants or expose them to the legal problems. Um, so we had uh, free reign to uh, take... Uh, take people through this and we recruited people online with listservs social media and some personal contacts and uh had uh, some help there um a survey was placed online uh and there were certain things we wanted to see um to avoid issues we made it adults only age 21 or up uh they had to be an american resident uh, and they had to and this was the important part they had to be using uh, a cannabigerol predominant product, meaning at least 50% CBG uh, in the past six months. And then uh, we asked a bunch of questions and uh, analyzed those statistically. In terms of the demographics, uh, 166 people started, but 127 completed, and that's not unusual. People get bored or decide they don't want to do it for some reason. Um, uh, it was about 34% males and 40% females, uh, predominantly Caucasian, some diversity. There was a range of income and education, but unlike some surveys of medical use of cannabis, where there are a lot of people who are disabled or unemployed, the majority of the people who took part uh, were working. The first thing we examined was the use patterns for the cannabigerol predominant uh, products. People had averaged uh, taking these for a little bit over nine months. So it wasn't, oh, you know, I tried it once and uh, this is what happened. We, we thought we had a better uh, foundation of information. 
When people were using flour, uh, they averaged about three and a half grams of CBG per week. Uh, and um, for people who were using concentrates, it was about a gram of CBG concentrates per week. Um, then we wanted to know why people took it. In other words, what conditions were they they treating? And actually, there were probably, boy, I didn't count. Um, there must have been 40 or 50 things that were mentioned, and some people had more than one. But the point being that over half, 51.2%, were using CBG for medical purposes. Only 6.3% characterized their use as recreational, and about 36.2% uh, called it both. Uh, and so this is a common situation. Certainly one could argue that all use has a medical basis, um, uh, but that's how people judge this themselves. The most common conditions that were cited uh, by the population involved uh, were anxiety, 51.2%, chronic pain, which was 40.9%, uh, depression, 33.1%, and insomnia, difficulty sleeping, and 30.7%. And again, that's this is all based on 127 people who completed the survey and again, were using cannabigerol predominant products. Uh, the next thing we wanted to examine was how did they compare cannabigerol with conventional medicines that might be used to treat the same conditions. Well, first of all, um, they seem to think that this worked pretty well. A uh, majority of the conditions, people said that they were much or very much improved as compared to prior to taking cannabigerol. Um, the highest efficacy was associated with endometriosis, a gynecological condition, on 66.7% um, cited that as, as being helpful. Then uh, one I didn't necessarily expect, inflammatory bowel disease, 75% uh, and irritable bowel syndrome, 82.4%. So clearly people with gastrointestinal issues uh, found this quite helpful. Now, what's really interesting to me was not a single person thought that conventional medicine was superior to CBG for these various wow, conditions. not a single person. That's, that, that's <laughs> extreme. Yeah, it really makes you wonder. And I'm sure that some people probably think, oh, you know... Uh, again, it's a psychoactive effect. They're high, but they weren't high. Um, so it's not the usual uh, disclaimer that you sometimes hear about in relation to THC. They're high and they don't care that about their condition uh, anymore. So that's clearly just not the case. Another measure of efficacy of a medicine is what does it allow you to stop? In other words, um, were people discontinuing conventional medicines? Um, there were a significant number of people who discontinued conventional medicine because of the use of CBG. Um, this is particularly true for antidepressant meds, um, the non-opioid analgesics, so that would include things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and also protein pump inhibitors. Um, so, you know, they'd be used with 
by people who had ulcers or that kind of problem. So again, we've got the gut. Um, seemingly a lot of affinity there for that kind of problem. Um, so you know, we're, again, one of the main reasons we did this is finding out what it's good for. Uh, and frankly, you know, we we wanted to establish this because uh, I expect that CBG on uh, CBG predominant products eventually are going to be going into clinical trials and we have to establish a pattern on uh, number one of what's it good for and number two is it safe and uh, certainly that was one of the primary reasons we wanted to do this this survey to lay a foundation for future uh, more in-depth randomized controlled trials. That's an interesting idea, especially with how you described the, the legal environment for trying to do this sort of research, that if I understand you correctly, you kind of had to do this study first so that you can now go back to the well and do a, a more complex, deeper study study because without this study um, you would not be able to get a heavier duty study even approved yeah certainly Mm. true so uh, I can relate a story Um, believe it or not it was not that many years ago uh, that my my colleague uh, Donald Abrams wanted to do a study looking at inhaled cannabidiol CBD and the first reaction from uh, the FDA was, well, we don't have a record of uh, human use in this fashion, uh, which really wasn't true. CBD had been extensively investigated as part of, of Sativax and Epiximols in clinical trials, uh, and we, we knew all we needed to know about its safety for humans. Uh, But basically, he had to put together information showing that CBD was extensively available in California and elsewhere, and that hundreds of thousands of people were using it with no uh, major problems, and then he was able to proceed with the research. Well, you know, you have to look at these things and wonder what's going to happen the next round with the next new quote-unquote cannabinoid and I really anticipated that there would be pushback about proposed CBG studies. Um, Normally, uh, say a drug's really new, a new chemical entity, something you synthesize in the lab. The normal procedure is to test it in animals and do advanced toxicology studies where huge amounts are given to rats and or dogs Um, and then if there are no major problems you get to give it to people well this is cannabis again the amounts of CBG in the past were probably low but again we wanted to establish a pattern of use by humans uh, without apparent problems uh, so that we hopefully will not face the same kind of resistance. Did you have a difficulty fi- <clears throat> finding, you know, the, the 166 people who started, but then like the 127 that finished? Um, you know, as somebody who works closely with CBG, I know that finding, you know, CBG dominant products or flour that are 51% or more CBG, that's very rare. You know, that's that's not a common uh, thing. Was Was it... What, what did you find as far as like being able to recruit people who had access to that? Was, was that a challenge? 
well, you know, most of the people came from the Northwest. This has really uh, been the area in the world where there's been the most intensive uh, cultivation of CBG predominant varieties and the greatest interest in its therapeutic use. Um, it didn't take us forever to do this. I think it was just a few months. Um, so I was quite gratified with that. And uh, the other thing was we had very good contacts on trying to do this. You know, uh, among others, we sent this to our colleagues that see the greatest number uh, of patients uh, for cannabis recommendations, and a lot of them are accessing CBG predominant products, and um, it, it came together nicely. It's interesting that you mentioned that it's um, uh, prevalent most in the Pacific Northwest uh, or for the interest. Was was there anything that came up in the research that give you anything to attribute that for? I mean, my, my only bet would be because the, the Crawford brothers are in Oregon, and that's my best bet. Well, they've been the prime movers for sure, but uh, there are other breeders that have independently uh, bred CBG predominant varieties and uh, interest has increased. Um, but yeah, we in the Northwest are really uh, at the center of uh, interest in this compound. Interesting. Um, so I asked this question not as an indictment, simply as a neutral <laughs> question. But um, how should we weigh the scientific validity of self-reporting in this case, right? Um, I don't know a lot about um, conducting scientific research, but self-reporting sounds like something that should be at least considered for, for, for accuracy. Um, but I, I know it counts as actual science. So so how, how can we think about that? Well, uh, you know, in the higher of medical proof, a survey doesn't get a lot of credence. However, in this instance, we had good numbers. We had specificity with, uh, again, not the idea that uh, 1% CBG was present. These were CBG predominant uh, products being used. Uh, additionally, we saw consistency in the results. Um, and, you know, it would be different if this were something that people took because they liked it. In other words, where people could claim that, well, you know, people use regular cannabis because uh, they like THC and like being high. That just wasn't the case here. Um, also, we had consistency in uh, the side effects. Uh, you know, uh, we've talked about the good. We need to include the bad, such as it was. But as it turned out, there wasn't a lot to say. Uh, 44% of people in the survey reported no adverse events. In other words, no significant side effects. Uh, most common were things that might have been due to uh, uh, THC that was in some of the preparations. So dry mouth, sleepiness, increased appetite, and dry eyes, all of which um, could have been THC-induced. Um, interestingly, although we were asking about adverse events, 10% reported of other side benefits. Um, but when we look at... Um, the list, um, it's not an extensive list. Um, people were not uh, reporting anything uh, really uh, dangerous like uh, paranoia or hallucinations. Um, and we also wanted to ask about uh, withdrawal. Say you've been taking this for a while, what happened when you stopped? But 
84.3% reported no withdrawal symptoms of any kind. Um, there were uh, very, very few uh, who reported sleep difficulties when they quit um, as compared to non-CBG predominant cannabis, in other words, garden variety cannabis, uh, there were very uh, marked statistically significant differences. In other words, when people stopped, they had many fewer issues, if any, uh, as compared to other types of cannabis. Um, so uh, it's clear again, this isn't addictive. Uh, it's not getting people high. It's not producing significant withdrawal. Uh, I have got a quick question about the, the definition of withdrawal. Um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a regular CBG uh, user, and it does a wonderful job decreasing my anxiety and softening my ADHD. Um, however, when I haven't had it for a few days, some of the sharper edges of those aspects of me come out. And, and, and so it's, it's not that I've with that I'm having withdrawal symptoms from the, the supplement. It's because without the supplement, um, my brain's a lot clankier, right? What's a definitional difference between withdrawal and just missing the cannabis? Yeah. Well, you, you've made you've asked the exactly right question. There's a difference between withdrawal and a recrudescence, a reappearance of, of symptoms that were present before. So withdrawal would be uh, more the idea of something's worse than it was before, or something that wasn't there at all before. Um, you know, withdrawal and uh, other drugs, uh, uh, you know, would also lead to craving. Um, we, we didn't hear about uh, craving uh, to speak of um, or behavior, uh, uh, obsessive behavior um, to reacquire the material. Um, the things that one would associate with, say, opioid addiction where people unfortunately turn to crime to obtain it, um, nothing like that. Um, and no pink elephants or things we associate with alcohol, uh, no DTs, etc. So, um, of the people, I, I know you've already given us the numbers of the people who uh, thought that the cannabis was more effective for their ailment than the pharmaceutical treatments that they were taking. Was there any sense of how many people? You know, they had an opportunity to have CBG and they saw it worked and they were not interested in the pharmaceutical, but then they couldn't find more because CBG seems to still be spotty, right, in the market. Yeah. I'm afraid we just don't have that kind of information yet. Um, and again, hopefully uh, supplies will be available in the future and this won't be a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, again, from a scientific point of view, we're looking at this as a foundation towards much more sophisticated uh, studies that are going to be uh, in the upper reaches of that hierarchy of medical proof. Uh, basically, anything short of a randomized controlled trial uh, with comparative placebo is not given a lot of credence uh, by physicians or the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, so that's what we're going to need 
need to really uh, prove, if you will, uh, that this is going to be a valuable medicine. Well, that's a beautiful transition, Ethan. Thank you. Because during the third set, uh, we're going to talk about looking forward for the future of CBG and, and how best we folks can use it. So let's go ahead and take our second short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabis researcher and neurologist, Dr. Ethan Russo. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert Biological Systems has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the U.S. from coast to coast. No matter where you live, Copert Biological Systems can help. Visit copert.com. Choose your country and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T dot com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check out their Instagram, at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband. And their award-winning Blueberry Muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Land Race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant. 
Humboldt Seed Company. Let them know Shango sent you. With the National Hemp Program in flux due to stringent THC testing requirements, brothers Seth and Eric Crawford continue to release seeds to hemp farmers that will be legal, no matter how you grow them or when you test them. These new varieties from Oregon CBD seeds have substantial amounts of CBDV, CBGV, CBCV, and THCV, while always staying below the 0.3% THC limit and guaranteeing compliant crops for farmers every time. Also, these new varieties cannot be pollinated by your neighbor's uncontrolled pollen or a rogue male in your own crop either. Oregon CBD seeds are non-GMO certified too. Oregon CBD Seeds was founded and funded in 2015 by Seth and Eric, maxing out their personal credit cards without outside investment. They continue to refuse outside investment that would change their company culture. Oregon CBD grows tons of fresh food on their research farms for local food banks, literally tons of food. They also give away tens of thousands of pounds of R&D flour to patients. As their company began to succeed, Seth and Eric started donating money to the cannabis medicine and hemp fiber cause too by giving millions of dollars to Oregon State University in order to establish the world's leading cannabis genomics research program. And they treat their employees right. Oregon CBD pays for full health and dental coverage for their employees, a 401k program, and their minimum starting wage is 20 bucks an hour. Plus, everyone shares food from the farms. Seth has been on Shaping Fire a few times to talk about novel cannabinoids. You can check out episodes 25 and 37 on CBD cultivars in the hemp market, episode 66 on triploid cannabis genetics, and the very first Shaping Fire Live, episode 47, with Seth and soil expert Jeff Lowenfels talking about autoflowers. If you are a hemp farmer and you want to grow reliable seeds that are sure to thrive and pass testing, check out OregonCBDSeeds.com to learn more about buying seeds for the 2021 season. That's OregonCBDSeeds.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis researcher and neurologist, Dr. Ethan Russo. So let's take a look forward. You know, during the first set, we uh, got a better understanding of what CBG is and a bit about how it is functioning in the human. And then during the second set, you know, we essentially talked to uh, like 127 people to find out how CBG is helping them live better lives and get off of their pharmaceuticals with, uh, you know, increased side effects. So that's all great. Um, and we've already also talked about how the uh, environment for research for CBG is opening, but there's still all these hoops you've got to go through. Um, I'm curious right now, uh, what show, what, what areas are showing promise looking forward? Um, because, you know, I know there are, there are, you know, uh, you know, college and graduate students and citizen scientists and others who are constantly looking for the promise in cannabinoids and, and perhaps we can either motivate them or direct them in ways that are, are most likely to bear fruit. So the survey measured the prior use of the participants and their continued need for 13 different classes of medications that they um, appeared to be linked with CBG. And you talked about that a little bit already saying that, you know, there were a lot of people who, um, A, uh, uh, preferred it to their pharma and B, because they knew it, they, they believed it worked. 
what are the classes of these 13 different medications? Because it would seem to point where we should look at uh, for, for shorter term success. Sure. Well, you know, once again, the the best signal were uh, for non-opioid pain relievers. Uh, With the opioids, it wasn't a highly statistically significant effect. Um, So it would be a little different from the claims that we hear associated with, uh, say, THC-predominant cannabis. Um, But Probably, I think the most important one here is antidepressants. So there was a p-value, probability value, 0.02. Anything below uh, 0.05 is considered statistically significant for medical purposes. Um, So that one's really interesting. Um, But... uh, I would say that considering the number of the big number of conditions that we saw listed, um, that there are probably many other areas um, that beyond those uh, where this would be fruitful. Um, Again, we can go back to the basic science um, and really see where the signals are. Um, So, you know, if the question would be, uh, what is going to be promising for future indications, I think we have answers already. So... As far as like the 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 how many people, I, I, what I'm going to is is market attraction, right? Because one of the interesting aspects of of the paper is that you know towards the end, it's all, you know, uh, there's there's accessibility and its potential future in pharmaceuticals, but really the fastest mover right now is the cannabis market and people's interests in in cannabis with uh, you know what we're calling novel cannabinoids, right? So. Um, um, as far as the t- statistics go, does this look like something that is going to de- be desired by everybody? Because on its face, to me, it does. How did it bear out in the numbers? Well, again, it's hard to say. Um, you know, when a new thing comes along, there's always somebody that's going to suggest we should put it in the water. I'm not going to go that far. Um However, um, uh, I do see certain areas that are are preeminent here. Um, As I'm sure you've uh, heard uh, from your contacts, this seems to be a remarkable treatment for anxiety. Um, And what really distinguishes it from other uh, drugs is that it does this without being overtly sedating. Most anti-anxiety agents are going to be quite sedating. Many are addictive. Uh, Clearly, CBG is not either of those things. Uh, And I've also heard people say something to me that's very profound in relation to its use in treating anxiety, and that is its ability to allow them to compartmentalize. What that means is you know, whatever was bothering them, they know it's there, but they can put it aside and concentrate on the tasks at hand. In other words, just not let it pervasively interfere with their functioning. Um, to me, that's the definition of a good drug for anxiety, um, allowing people to function better. 
Um, I'd like to add a little color to that as well. I, I like the way that that you put that. Uh, when I hear about that that same attribute from patients, they talk about it being. They feel like they've got an increased capability that their 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 life struggles or challenges or pain have not decreased, but somehow they feel like they're able to handle it. Like they um, have the capability to meet the the difficulty of of the issue and and in a way that's them being able to compartmentalize it so that they can um you know they can they can handle it more uh, were there other varieties of anxiety that you saw pop up gee not uh we we just uh, survey could not have that level of detail. I think that would come from patient narratives, um, and that's something we'll have to supplement in the future. Right on that. That um, makes sense for, yeah. for for folks that are listening and are curious. The other things that that. I'm seeing just from people taking them, and certainly not at a scientific level, and nearly only anecdotal. Um, we're also seeing a decrease in uh, people ruminating, either ruminating first thing in the morning of all the things that could potentially go wrong, or ruminating at night of all the things that potentially did get wrong, and re- re- rethinking things. And um, and for others, that that background anxiety that a lot yeah. of people have. Well, right there, you may have put your finger on how this has been good for sleep because certainly nobody's going to get to sleep if they're running through the all the bad stuff that happened during the day or all the bad stuff they're facing tomorrow. That's a sleep killer. We're right finding there. that a lot of the people who are sensitive to THC and they don't really want to take it at night because I don't understand the mechanics behind this, but some people who will take as little as... Um, you know, five or ten milligrams at night. They they describe a, a, a hangover of sorts, and and they don't they don't care for it. And and we've found that a lot of the people who switch over to the CBG, since it doesn't have the THC in the preparation at significant numbers, if you're pulling it from hemp, um, they're still getting to sleep because the ruminating is get gone, but they're not using the THC. So that's a win. Sure. Yeah. So, um, what are your thoughts? So, so you and I have talked actually probably several times on this show about um, about your interest in whole plant compounds um, as a preference to um, using lots of isolates, and and so we know that your 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 probably top choice would be to have a plant that is bred and grown specifically with a particular blend for a certain set of ailments and then creating a, a whole plant oil and then and then giving that to the patient um however the market has not developed to the point yet that those preparations really exist um except for you know small pockets um what are your thoughts on doing with CBG what many people did, you know, five years ago with CBD, where they would make a a whole plant oil. Think of it as like an RSO or a FICO or whatever you know people say call it in there where they live. But a, a they prepare a whole plant oil and then they spike it with CBG isolate, like people used to spike CBD into a THC RSO. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on that whole range of? Eh. 
Uh, well, you know, certainly it's a legitimate approach uh, to treating a disorder. Uh, we know that CBD also has anti-anxiety properties. Uh, the difference being that uh, the doses required for CBD are a lot higher than with CBG. Um, it remains to be seen, but it's a good bet that the combination is going to be more effective. And then there'd be other components, particularly terpenoids, that can contribute here. Um, so certainly uh, the possibilities for ex experimentation are great. Um, and um, it is a situation, fortunately, even in development of a pharmaceutical from cannabis, uh, that this kind of blending uh, is allowed. As long as uh, the material is all cannabis-derived, uh, that's a legitimate approach. And we know this already because, in fact, uh, Sativax or Nabiximols, which is approved in 30 countries, is actually a blend of two different chemovars, a THC uh, predominant chemovar and a CBD predominant chemovar. So the same kind of approach could be used with a CBG uh, predominant chemovar in combination with something else to give the blend that we wish. You know, a, f a few states, especially the ones that are still medical, um, ha are having um, you know internal policy discussions about whether or not um, isolate that has been added to cannabis products should be labeled as such. So the kind of product that we just talked about, a an, an oil, uh, a whole plant oil, if, if, if it's been spiked with either CBG or CBD or anything else, that it, it should be noted on the package that there was isolate added to it, kind of like a, you know, fortified with CBG kind of thing. What are your thoughts? Do, does it matter? Do you think it should be on the label? And, and if so, why? Uh, yeah, I believe in truth in advertising. Um, unfortunately, the industry is uh, not self-policed. Uh, quality control isn't what it really needs to be. And um, I uh, would always worry about how it was produced, whether it was pure, uh, whether it actually was synthetic uh, rather than um, derived from cannabis. Uh, so all of these things are germane on their things that I think the consumer deserves to know. Well, that begs the question. You know, I, I did um, a, a show a while back with uh, 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 Greg Gerdeman about synthetic cannabinoids, um, both the, you know, the creation of cannabinoids that we're familiar with, like THC and CBD in a synthetic manner, but also the kind of synthetic cannabinoids that are used for testing and research in the lab and don't really have much use outside of the lab. Um, but the way that you answered that question makes me super curious. Does it matter if a cannabinoid in this case, CBG, is from the plant or if it is made through a synthetic process, in the end, it is the same molecule or no? Well, it, it should be, uh, but sometimes 
these syntheses will produce byproducts that could be contaminants and potentially toxic. So that's always a concern. Also, it has to be the right stereoisomer. In other words, have the right three-dimensional configuration um, to have the same activity as the natural compound from the plant. So these are all considerations. Um, ideally, uh, it will all need to be cannabis-derived uh, to produce a pharmaceutical uh, that isn't considered a combination drug. And then in specific states, such as New York, um, any additions have to be cannabis-derived. That's part of the law there. Um, so I think it is important, and uh, irrespective of what I think, this is going to be a requirement in certain contexts. Right on. Well, that's interesting. All right, so so let's let's finish this on a on, a, on an upbeat, positive note there, Ethan. So, um, looking forward, I know that you are very attracted to CBG, and you are already looking at um, your next work along the same line of thought. Would you give us a little idea of of what you're going to be doing next? Ah, uh, sure. Uh, well, truth be told, I am associated with a company called Andira Pharmaceuticals out of Vancouver, British Columbia, um, and CBG portends to be a big part of its future. And this would be for two indications that really weren't picked up to any degree in the survey um, but these are all based on available past science and specifically they are treatment of cancer as we mentioned um, uh, there's certain cancers that when they're metastatic we don't have any current conventional drugs that are able to treat them but CBG seems to be uh, specially uh, promising in treating prostate cancer and breast cancer and those are uh, two of the most common uh, cancers that become metastatic and then uh, hard or sometimes impossible to treat. Uh, so that's one area. And the other one is antibiotics. Um, uh, we're seeing phenomenal results from the lab um, in terms of CBG as a treatment for uh, infections including these antibiotics resistant infections, MRSA as I mentioned, but also um, vancomycin resistant enterococcus which is responsible for a lot of hospital acquired infections and um, a significant number of deaths. Um, uh, so uh, one of the exciting things about that is so far from the lab. Uh, we don't have any indication that uh, these bacteria will develop resistance uh, to cannabigerol as they do to conventional antibiotics. Um, so this, this really may be revolutionary. Um, my hope is, again, that we've provided um, a pattern of human use that indicates the uh, safety of these products, which is going to facilitate um, moving them into the clinic for these specific indications. I've got this huge smile over here, Ethan, because, you know, I was, I was wrapping up the show and I was giving you kind of a fishing question and, and then you dropped on us 
cannabis, or, or excuse me, uh, cancer and antibiotics. These are both huge applications that, uh, be, you know, because they, they weren't part of the purview of the study, I had not heard that they were happening because they're happening in private labs, like you said. Um, that's, uh, that's very exciting. Uh, is there any public research that's available? Like, you know, as somebody who's interested in both CBG and uh, doing um, support for, for, for cancer patients, are there any studies out there that, or, or you know of taking place that are going to come out where, where we can read more? Uh, yeah, the uh, study by Appendino on cannabigerol uh, could be easily found on uh, National Library of Medicine PubMed website. Um, so I'm um, that uh, that's well established, and there'll be a lot more uh, lab uh, studies coming out uh, soon. Um, and then. Um, for cancer, there are various studies. Again, if people would input on the PubMed uh, website, cannabigerol and cancer, uh, they'll see the various hits. Um, but again, that's just the beginning of what we expect uh, will be quite, uh, quite uh, a number of uh, important studies yet to come. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to talking uh, to you about them here when they come out. Ethan, thank you so much for reaching out to me and wanting to talk about this new survey so that we can all get up to speed as as this new uh, cannabinoid becomes more more common to use and more common to, to find. Well, thank you again for the opportunity. If you want to find out more about Dr. Ethan Russo, um, you can check out any of the other three, four, three episodes that uh, we've had uh, Dr. Ethan Russo for the guest at. That will be on the page for uh, this episode at shapingfire.com. Also, you can check out uh, Dr. Russo's company, Credo Science, which is credo-science.com. It's, um, it's, a, it's a company that is delving into some of the areas that Dr. Russo has found to be most attractive over his, you know, over 25 years of studying the cannabis plant. And then finally, if you want to reach out to Dr. Russo yourself with a question or a comment, you can always reach him at EthanRusso at Comcast.net. Um, and if you do um, write to Ethan, just be aware that, you know, he's, he is still researching and he's still publishing and it may take him a while to get back to you, but he does try to get back to everybody um, eventually. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shangolos on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.